Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Scott Gregory, sitting in today for Rich Fisher. We offer on our program another installment in the ongoing Museum Confidential podcast series, which is a co-creation of Public Radio Tulsa and Philbrook Museum of Art. Now in its seventh season, Museum Confidential is a podcast looking at what goes on in museums and what goes on in the art world more generally. This time around, we're speaking with Michael Fenley, who published a book several years ago called The Value of Art, Money, Power, Beauty. That book is just now coming out in a new and expanded edition as we speak today with Michael Fendley on Museum Confidential here on Studio Tulsa. There's no new art movement. <laughs> I think we've stopped having them. We're just, um, we're just intent on finding new ways to package, manufacture, polish up, and make more money out of uh, what already the 20th century already invented. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. A decade ago, Michael Finley published The Value of Art. In the book, he shared his decades of experience in galleries and auction houses to help explain, or at least make sense of a complicated and often misunderstood thing, the art market. But the world has changed in many ways since the book's initial publication. A global pandemic, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, cryptocurrency and NFTs, so many factors have impacted how people and institutions are buying and selling art. Michael has just released a new updated edition, and I wanted to pick his brain a little. From Philbrook Museum of Art and Public Radio Tulsa, I'm your host, Jeff Martin, and this is Museum Confidential. <laughs> So thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I was excited to see this uh, recent edition of the book because obviously since it was written, the world changed quite a bit in terms of the world that you live in. So I want to begin with kind of why you thought it was a good time to revisit this project because obviously the book, uh, The Value of Art, took a lot of time to put together and it's kind of this compendium of everything you've learned in a lot of ways and all the work that you've done. But, you know, why did you want to put a new edition out and kind of revisit this topic generally? It was a combination of the fact that, that, that during COVID, I had more time to reflect on what was going on in my world, in the art world and in the art market. And it appeared that there might be some inflection point, certainly when things, you know, when things stopped or and started up in a new direction, certainly in terms of technology. And, and to, to be honest, my publisher also suggested it. I was presented by them with the idea. They thought that the book had been selling well for 10 years, and they thought that there was some uh, life to be breathed into it. And that kind of coincided 
with what I had been thinking. I would, would have either written a, an essay or, or, or just jotted down my thoughts as these two things seemed to be occurring uh, simultaneously. And one was the, uh, the degree of activism that finally penetrated the art world after the death of murder of George Floyd. And at the same time, the um, embrace of technology by art fairs, dealers, auction houses, etc., and on top of that, the emergence of NFTs. You know, I would have loved to be able to write about a new art movement, but there's no new art movement. <laughs> I think we've stopped having them. We're just um, we're just intent on finding new ways to package, manufacture, polish up and make more money out of the, what already the 20th century already invented. So when you, when you say something like that, which is, you know, kind of takes me aback a bit, when was the last noticeable movement? What, you know, if you look at the last 60 years you've been in this business, what was the last time you felt any kind of revolution or change? Well, I, as a minor plug for an exhibition that's opening in a few days that I've organized called Less, which is about minimalism, it's American minimalist sculptures from the 1960s. I would say that in the 60s, 70s, through the 80s, you had a kind of a concertina of movements uh, not labeled by the artists at all necessarily, but from pop art to op art to conceptual art to earth art to, um, you know, to minimal art. And then it seemed to me that and painting was dead for a while certainly everybody declared painting was dead and then what happened i guess in in the 90s and in the last 20 years is that what has flourished is a much more if i can use the word catholic embrace of of any kind of work that was done in the 20th century and with technology it can be added to and made to look more interesting. It can reach many more people, but I have yet to see work that is, to me, now at my advanced age, as shocking as some of the work that I showed in the 1960s to the old Gramps who'd come into the gallery and say, that's not art. And, and you know, and we'd have a good argy-bargy about things that, that they found shocking. I'm I want to be shocked. I'm I'm waiting to be shocked. I want to say that's too disgusting to be art, or that's. But in fact, what I see mostly, and it's not everything. When I when I look at the landscape, I see a lot of very intelligent, uh, well-made, interesting, often good to look at works of art of all shapes and sizes. And their ancestry is very clear to me. In other words, their parents and their grandparents and their uh, illegitimate great-grandparents are, are all things I've, I've, I've seen before. You know, you mentioned uh, the rise of NFTs. I've actually interviewed people on this podcast, but I've been interested to see how quickly, I think people saw the certain aspects of a bubble with that idea, but it seems like it's already begun to crumble in many ways. Have you been surprised at the speed of that? Because I kind of thought it would last for uh, a few years, but it seems like it actually ended up being more like months. 
Well, it's interesting you said that because obviously I sent my text to my publisher, uh, you know, a year ago. And then I thought, well, by the time the book comes out, nobody will be interested. The, the NFTs will be over anyway. So why did I spend so much uh, uh, time writing about them? I, I am a bit surprised at that, I think, and I don't begin to claim to understand the ins and outs of it. I think it's part of the of the issues that, that we have with cryptocurrency, which seems to be closely tied to NFTs. I mention a couple of artists in, in, in the book that I think are, you know, have, have made imaginative and inventive use of NFTs, but I think the, the majority of the NFTs that were manufactured and sold were based on other than those that, that museums made of their own works in the museums, that they're relatively uninteresting images, and, and they're very limited as images. So um, it didn't, I don't think there's an artist who expanded in any radical way because they used an NFT. I, I, I think they've got to, if they want to expand in a radical way using technology, they've got to find a way of um, semi-destroying that technology. In other words, at the moment, it seems that artists are using technology as a new pencil rather than, you know, maybe saying, well, maybe I should use the end of the pencil rather than the front of the pencil and moving the scientists or the engineers to do something that they would otherwise not know to do. The way that Rauschenberg did with the Bell Labs in the 60s, where he got Bell Lab engineers to do stuff that they thought was completely wacky but because Rauschenberg had this kind of vision he he pushed them rather than being pushed by them so you know when the pandemic was at its worst moment you know the art world kind of paused uh, and was very uncertain we didn't know what was going to happen with that but you look recently to auctions that have happened in the last months few months even it certainly seems like prices have rebounded. There is an argument that, you know, there were kind of two pandemics. There was the pandemic of the very wealthy, which didn't have any impact at all. And then kind of the pandemic for everybody else. And the art world certainly lives in a polarized space. But, you know, what do you see as a gallerist and looking at the art market? Was there any long-term negative impact of the pandemic on the actual market itself that you see? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think, though, that I mean, I've, I've seen lots of cycles uh, over the years in the art market. It seemed to me that, that as you said, uh, auction houses, actually, many of the, they did, they did very well and they adapted. Art fairs, less so. Not many galleries uh, went out of business. I mean, we, we adapted as galleries. And as you said, there were people who were making money in those days, and they, they too were sitting at home and they learned to shop online, even if they would, may have been buying or looking for works by Andy Warhol and, 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 and Picasso. I think, however, that there was also, post-COVID, there was, there was a big bounce, a big bounce of back to normal, back to real life. And the auctions of 2021 to 2022 were certainly very strong. I think we're actually moving into a slightly slowed, slowed down market. Um, the 
media concentrates on the high numbers and the high prices that that are seen at auction, you know, painting sold for $100 million. However, if you drill down and look at the actual number of people who are bidding and the fact that those major sales cannot afford to fail because the auction houses have invested so much, a lot of those works are guaranteed. They're pre-sold. I mean, they could be bid up beyond a certain amount, but it's... Um, there is not as much activity as it appears. There's not as, at the top, there's not as much as it appears. And there's still, I think, an appetite for the next hot emerging artist or who is Kim Kardashian buying, um, you know, or if you're at the Seoul Art Fair, uh, what booth is RM looking into? And and that's that's a fairly expensive level of spending, but it's again it's a relatively small number of people. So, I think we will be retrenching. I don't know if there's going to be a recession. Um, things may get quieter. People don't want to sell into a market like that. So the things that come for sale will only come for sale when people die. You know, you've had the gallery, what, 60 years next year? Will that be 60 next well, year? Well, I the, the the gallery I work with at the moment, Aquavella, is 100 years old. Okay. I, I, I retired from Christie's in 2000, and I've been with Aquavella for 23 years. No. Before I joined Christie's, I was a dealer from 1964 to 84. So I've been around a long time, too long probably. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, though, you know, you've seen in that time a lot of busts, a lot of moments where things were, were going great. And so having seen the kind of ups and downs of the economy, you've been through many recessions. Does that make it easier to forecast how to get through the next one when you've done it a few times? Or does every single one seem existential when it happens? Yeah, I mean, I I think probably the only thing I've learned is you just keep going. And um, if you have, uh, if you've built good personal relationships with both buyers and sellers, then you, you, you maintain those and you may not be as active on a daily, weekly basis as you were, uh, but you keep going. I, I would say the, the most dramatic point that I lived through was in 1991, when because the Japanese real estate market collapsed overnight, Japan, which was actually responsible for about a third of everything sold privately and publicly in the area of contemporary impressionist and modern art, that stopped overnight. And, and that was a huge hit that almost everybody I know as a dealer, as an auction house, even as an artist was was profoundly affected by, and the market didn't begin to recover for at least three or four years. I haven't seen anything like that since, and I don't expect it. I, I think the, the the glamour may slowly go off the kind of um, investment excitement of finding a new artist and paying a hundred grand and then selling it for five hundred grand and then getting another one and flipping it and. I mean, it seems to me that that's not really a healthy way to collect. Well, it's not really collecting, you know. 
And, and, and if, that, if that slows down, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Today's episode of Museum Confidential is sponsored by Bidding Paddle. Say you're at an art auction, you see something, you want something, you're ready to bid. You can't just raise your hand. You can't give a what's up nod and, you know, try to get by on a gesture. You need a paddle. And don't even think about bringing some sort of unused ping pong nonsense in there. Certainly not one of those paddles with a rubber ball and a string attached to it. No, there can be no substitute. Get yourself a bidding paddle and raise it high. Circling back to where we started, and you talked about, you know, there's kind of been a little bit of a time gap between the last kind of exciting revolution or what the next big thing was. How do you maintain excitement? You talked about people kind of being obsessed with the 20th century work. You know, you said you're looking for the next thing to shock you or, or whatever you're looking for. How do you kind of stay excited if those things aren't coming constantly? Well, luckily, I, I'm not. I mean, I, I used to be, you know, beating the bushes and going to studios and looking for things. And when I was doing that, there were actually plenty of things to find. There were artists like Sean Scully or John Baldessari or people like that. And, and, and I found them and a lot whose names are not known now that I, that I found. I mean, I, I would like to, what I enjoy doing is sitting down with a collector and, and, and whether they bring their, um, uh, their decorator or their advisor along is fine. And looking at a number of different types of works of art, whether it's by, whether they're by Matisse and Miro or whether they're by um, uh, Jim Rosenquist or, or more contemporary artists and finding works that people themselves get excited by, not because I tell them they're good, but because they spend enough time with them. There's, there's a lot of excitement to be had, and it doesn't always have to come from the newest and the latest. And, and one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why the market is, <laughs> well, let me put it another way. I think the market could thrive even more if the lens of, what people are going to be looking for widens. It has narrowed actually. Over the years, it's narrowed. So you now have a list of artists, top names, people prepared to spend a lot of money for those iconic artists. So if somebody comes to me and they say, oh, I don't know, I, I, I want a great painting by Franz Klein. And I say, well, um, have you ever, there's nothing by Klein at the moment, but have you thought about other other artists, other abstract expressions artists, or even an artist like Richard Diebenkorn, you know, who's I think very well known? And they might say, who's that? They, they'd say, who's that? And that would be the end of the conversation, or I don't know who that is. Whereas not so long ago, if I mentioned a name unfamiliar to the collector, they would say, no, tell me more. Who is that? I want to know who that is. Nowadays, they don't want to know who that is because they're not, Joe Blow next door didn't have one of his, so why should I? When reading the book um, and kind of taking a look at the new edition here, um, one thing that I noticed throughout it is 
you seem to have this internal dialogue with yourself too, kind of about the altruism of the work you do and kind of the discovery, like you talked about, you know, finding these artists, but then also kind of the, you know, being down and dirty in that kind of market world and kind of the two places that, you know, these like the devil and the angel on your shoulders kind of fighting <laughs> all the time. Is that something that I'm misreading or is that something that you have felt over time? I don't, I, I'm not conscious of it. I enjoy the fact that I can still have a sense of humor about and find delight in the quirky parts of our of our world. And I guess I'm also uh, don't want to become too cynical and glib because I I try to think often as often as I can from the point of view of the reasonably interested, curious person who is not immersed in the art world, who is not reading every art market blog. And I'm concerned about the picture that they get of the art world. And I fear, I fear that there are a lot of people who have the means to collect. And, and I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm talking about being able to spend a few hundred dollars to buy a good original print. And they don't because they're intimidated. They're intimidated by what they read in the newspaper. And I, I think if I have, <laughs> this is getting away from your question. I'm not avoiding it. But if I have a mission, it would be accessibility. It would be to encourage people, even forget buying art, to go to museums and go to galleries and, and really look and not just look for the big names or the, the selfie uh, uh, paintings. It, to, to, to find something that you like, even if you don't know who painted it or can't pronounce the name, it, it doesn't really matter. So I, I try to keep, I try to keep grounded, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, I know, I know the, I spent half my life in the back room and half my life in the in the in the in the fresh air. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand that. I appreciate your candor on that. A couple more questions before we wrap up. One is, you know, you kind of give us an insider's look at this world in this book and kind of share some things that I think the average person outside of your sphere might not understand. I'm curious, especially maybe when the book first came out. Was there any blowback from your peers like, hey, this, this is insider information or you're sharing too much out of, outside of class? You know, was there any kind of resistance to the industry from what you were sharing in this book? I would say categorically no, although I expected I might have. If there are people who were my trade peers, other dealers or whatever, who didn't like it or didn't like something, they have not they have not said made me aware of that. And I I was surprised by the number of people who who I consider to be to know, you know, more than I do, certainly who've been around a long time, who said they really enjoyed it and have used it to give to people who are less knowledgeable than they and I about, about the art world. So um no, I actually haven't. And I and I haven't yet had anything said to me about these new chapters, although I'm a bit surprised because um, 
I do go into some areas that 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 could probably be uh, uh, be provocative, but no. I, I maybe people aren't buying it. Maybe because it looks good on the coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I don't know. Uh, you know, hey, that's not the hey. worst reason in the world. We're talking <laughs> yeah. about aesthetics here. Um, you know, this is a show about museums generally and yes. the periphery of museums. And so, yeah. I'm curious to know. What was the museum that first made you love museums? What's your earliest memory of a, oh. a museum experience? Oh, oh, that's very, very easy. That that's the Tate Gallery in London. Because as I went to school in England, I'm, I'm originally Scottish, and I had an art teacher who who sent us to the Tate and to the National Gallery, and and he he was a wonderful he was, a, he was an artist and a wonderful individual. I mean, I'm talking about being. 10 or 11 years old and going and seeing Matisse's Blue Nude, uh, which is a, 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 a strange, ugly painting, early, early 1907, ugly painting. And it absolutely transfixed me at the Tate. Uh, what is now the Tate Britain, but the, the building, but it was then the Tate Gallery. And, and our teacher, he didn't, he didn't force any opinions on us or his own opinion. He what he what he judged was how hard had we looked and how well could we, you know, report to him on why we liked something or why we didn't, um, which was which was great training at a very early age. He didn't say this is good, this is bad. He said, you you just tell me what what you saw and 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 what you saw in it. So yeah, the Tate and the National Gallery were 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 absolutely the first museums that 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 I was in. And I go back to the. I mean, I I go back to the National Gallery every time I can, and I go back to the same paintings at the, at the National. Well, you know, Gallery. just a quick you know, follow up on that too. It's interesting, right? You know, that's the one thing about museums and our our relationship to them as we age is you could go back to that painting. The painting, in many ways, has not changed. Of course, you changed, but do you? Does your response to it change every time you go back to it? You know? Yes, it, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I and I've done it a few times. I did it with the Rothko Chapel over thirty years, thirty years in between. And I had exactly the same the same thing happen to me, which was quite emotional. And I didn't expect it to happen the second time, but it did. So you know, thank you so much for taking some time to chat today. I really enjoyed uh, revisiting the new edition of the book. I hope it's a big success. And uh, thank you so much for doing this today, Jeff. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's hardly news now when a painting sells for tens of millions of dollars. Occasionally, they cross the $100 million mark. But the art market changed forever in 1970. On November 27th at Christie's in London, the world auction record for a painting broke the million-pound barrier for the very first time. The painting was Velázquez's portrait from 1650 of his enslaved assistant, Juan de Perea. The previous record of just over 821,000 pounds had been set in 1961. Months after Velázquez completed the painting, he signed a document liberating his assistant from bondage. 
From that point on, Juan de Perea worked as a painter in his own right, producing large-scale works of a religious nature. Well, that's our show for this week. Museum Confidential is produced and edited by Scott Gregory in the studios of Public Radio Tulsa. Additional production assistance from Jack Dean. Until next time, look closer. <laughs>